Good morning again. Turn with me, in your, if you would, to your, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 22. That'll be our sermon text for this morning, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. Before we read that together, let's pray. Our Father, we come, uh, we come to you this morning uh, to hear from your word, to hear about your Son, uh, to hear the word of the gospel, uh, that we might be renewed and refreshed by it, uh, that we might be, uh, that we might greater understand your love for us in the cross, and in light of that love, uh, might be able to live for you more fully in the world. So, Father, we pray that you would come and that you would meet with us by your Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand and receive your word, that you would be with me, that you would enable me to speak truth, and that uh, whatever I might say that is not of you would be quickly forgotten, uh, but that your word would sink deeply into our hearts and take root and bear fruit in our lives. And we pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But, in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. 
For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When was the last time you were in an argument and you didn't want to admit it, but you were wrong? Or uh, when was the last time you were in an argument and you were right, but you found yourself on the losing side? In either case, what did you do? How did you respond? Well, we know how these things often go in this life, right? Well, you start to talk faster, you start to yell louder, uh, you begin to demonize the other person, you defend your righteousness at all costs. And uh, this is the way of this age, right? We must maintain our righteousness. We must prove ourselves to the people around us. We can't let the other person win, and so we end up locked in a power struggle. Well, this was the the, the MO of the Sadducees, who we're going to look at in Acts chapter 4. And uh, if you turn to the back of your bulletin, you see the the outline there. Uh, We're going to look at a couple of things. We're going to look at, at how much the Sadducees had to lose... We're going to look at how the resurrection was a threat to them and what they had to lose. We're going to see them clamoring for power, and then we're going to talk a little bit about our own power struggles in light of of this chapter and in light of the gospel. So first, so much to lose. What do you have to lose? What on earth do you have to lose? Uh, You could probably come up with a long list of things. Uh, You have family and you have friends, you have a house, you have a car, you have a job, you have a reputation. Of course, the more you have to lose, uh, or the more you have, the more you have to lose. Uh, The Sadducees in Acts chapter 4 actually had quite a bit. Uh, Remember where we are in Acts. Uh, Peter and John have healed a lame man on the way into the temple. Uh, That lame man was so overjoyed, he began walking and leaping and praising God, and he began to draw a crowd. And so Peter and John, there's a crowd, so what do they do? They preach the gospel. Uh, Jesus is the servant of God, spoken of by Isaiah, they say. He's the holy and righteous one, promised by the prophets. He's the author of life. This Jesus, they say in chapter 3, you delivered over and denied, but God raised him up from the dead. Of this, we are witnesses. And they go on to say, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and times of refreshing may come. Well, apparently between the, the leaping of the lame man and the gathering of the crowd and the fiery preaching of Peter, some of the people began to take notice, particularly the people who were in charge. Uh, look at verses 1 and 2. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. There are uh, three groups of people mentioned here in verse 1. There's the priests, uh, there's the captain of the temple, who was sort of like the the second in command to the high priest, who actually oversaw the temple police, who were actually a specially trained group of Levites. So this uh, captain of the temple oversees this uh, special group of Levites who act as the temple police. And then there's the Sadducees, so the priests, the captain, and the Sadducees. 
And uh, the next day, actually, after Peter and John are arrested, they have a kind of court inquiry. And, uh, and, and when they question Peter and John, and we read in verse 5 uh, that that included a few more people. Verse 5 says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. And uh, that included, uh, verse 6, together with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. The point is that whether you're in verse 1, verse 5, verse 6, all of these people are people who were in power. Uh, they, were, they were religiously and politically the people who had the most clout in Jerusalem at the time uh, within Israel. They oversaw the temple worship. They oversaw the whole sacrificial system. Uh, they held the people's relationship to God in their hands, right? If people wanted to uh, be reconciled to God, they had to come to the temple. They had to perform sacrifices. And the, these groups of people oversaw that process. Uh, they oversaw the money changers and the sale of the sacrificial animals. Um, and even Rome interacted with this group of people as representatives of Israel. So they, they not only had religious power, right, but they had uh, political clout as well. Uh, all the high priests came, uh, at that time at least, from the Sadducean party. And so this party, the party of the Sadducees, had, pol- had uh, particular power, right? They were on the top of the social scale. They were sort of the aristocrats, not aristocats, that's a Disney movie, but aristocrats of the day. Um, they, they were the few leading wealthy families, right? They were supported by the rich. They had little concern for the masses. And the Sadducees denied the resurrection. Uh, this is a group, uh, you may remember, that tried to trick Jesus by asking him a question about the resurrection. We read it about it earlier. They said, if a woman is widowed seven times in this life, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And, and Jesus began his answer, this great answer in Matthew 22. He, sa- he begins by saying, you are wrong because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. Uh, pretty blunt. And um, the, this group of people really are the most powerful people in Israel. They had religious, economic, and political clout. They controlled the temple, the temple guard, the temple money. Uh, they had an in with Rome. Right? These are wealthy, powerful men. They have a lot to lose. What do you have to lose? Uh, where have you found yourself in a comfortable spot in life? Uh, where do you have power or influence? Uh, where are you gaining notoriety? You know, when we're young, uh, we think about the answer to this question. It's, it's who's the coolest, right? Who's the strongest? Who's the fastest? Who's the prettiest? Uh, we get to college, suddenly the smartest begins to matter a little bit as well. Uh, and sometimes it's the little things in life, right? Like your friends look up to you. Um, or, or you find yourself rising the, the corporate ladder in your job, in your business, uh, gaining maybe a little prestige, a little bit more money as you do so. Sometimes it's much bigger things, of course, like people who are in government, uh, people who, are, uh, who run international businesses, or people who uh, have the ear of those in such positions. Um, what about you, right? What do you have to lose? Uh, the Sadducees knew what they had to lose, and they had no interest in losing it. And uh, this brings us to our next point, which is the threat of the resurrection. Uh, verse, tell, verse 2 tells us that the Sadducees were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. See, the resurrection uh, was a threat to the Sadducees. 
Now, can you imagine it, right? What, what we celebrate uh, on Easter, uh, it's pastel colors and Easter egg hunts, right? No one would assume that the thing we are celebrating is a threat. Uh, but it was. It was certainly a threat to the Sadducees, and in many ways it continues to be a threat uh, to today. Uh, first, the resurrection was a threat to their unbelief, right? Uh, the Sadducees were threatened by the resurrection, so they arrest Peter and John, they place them in custody until the next day. The next day, all of the religious elite gather together for this court hearing, and uh, they investigate what's going on. In verse 7, uh, they say, uh, By what power or by what name did you do this? And uh, then Peter responds in verses 8 to 10. Uh, he says, uh, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Now, uh, remember, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't want the apostles to preach the resurrection. But there's one problem. There's a lame man that has been healed. And that he has been healed is actually undeniable. Uh, they, they say that multiple times. Look at verse 14 and verses, verses 14 and 16. 14, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them. Right? Remember, he was lame. He couldn't walk. He couldn't stand. But they see him right there standing beside them. They had nothing to say in opposition. Verse 16, they're talking amongst themselves. They say, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Right? There's nothing we can say here to deny what has happened. Uh, they could not deny that a man had been healed. And now, though, Peter ups the ante because he is saying that it was through the resurrected Jesus that this healing happened uh, through Jesus, verse 10, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Of course this is a threat to the Sadducees. Uh, it's a threat to their reigning orthodoxy, right, to their beliefs, uh, just as it is a threat to really the reigning orthodoxy today, the reigning beliefs in our age, or at least as verse 2 says, it's annoying. You know, when we say that Jesus has risen from the dead... What we're saying is that materialism is wrong. Uh, we're saying that naturalism is wrong, that there's something more uh, than this life. There is something more than what you can see with your eyes. Uh, we're saying you can no longer uh, simply ignore the spiritual world, that there is a God before, before whom you will have to stand. That God, God judged Jesus faithful and raised him from the dead. And he will judge each one of us on the last day. That's the implications of the resurrection. That Jesus was judged faithful and so raised from the dead. And each one of us will be judged as well. So the resurrection is a threat. Right? It's a threat to their unbelief. It's a threat to their denial of the resurrection. It's a threat to them personally as they stand before God. Second, the resurrection is a, is a threat to their status. Right? Peter goes on uh, in verses 11 and 12 to say this. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. 
And these verses, uh, especially this image, works on so many different levels. Peter is quoting Psalm 118 in verse 11. He he quotes Psalm 118 uh, as it uses a proverb that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And, uh, of course, if you were erecting a building in that day, uh, a stone that might not fit the foundation, right, that might not be flat enough or square enough or just the right shape, uh, might nevertheless be the perfect stone later on in the building process or even for the top, for the capstone. And, And the word cornerstone might refer to a foundation stone or to the capstone that holds it all together, that holds everything together in the end. Either way, actually, the point is the same point of the proverb, that is, uh, what those in charge rejected ended up having primacy. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or the capstone. What those in charge rejected ended up having privacy. It's like primacy. Uh, it's, it's like the kid who's picked last for dodgeball who ends up being the star player, right? You know, uh, nobody suspected it. Uh, the people in power rejected him, but then in the end he comes through. Uh, Psalm 118 uses this image to speak of Israel's king being in trouble, rejected by those around him, but saved from his troubles by God. And of course, this is the apostolic witness that we've seen again and again in Acts, right? That, that Jesus was rejected by men, but raised by the Father. And of course, Jesus is Israel's king, right? He is the true son of David who sits on the throne of God in heaven. He was rejected by his own, but exalted by the Father to the highest place in his resurrection and in his ascension. And so think about what this means then for the Sadducees, for Israel's religious leaders, right? They are the builders who rejected Jesus, who has now become the cornerstone, In their position of authority, right, as the builders, as the leaders of Israel, they rejected Jesus. They rejected the Messiah. But God overruled them and raised him up. They claim to speak for God, but God has overturned their judgment. And so Jesus' resurrection is a threat to their status as the religious leaders. It shows that they've been wrong this whole time. These verses, though, work on another level. Uh, I once read of a connection between, uh, in Jewish lore, between these words in Psalm 118 and the building of the temple. Uh, That is, the lore was that there was a stone in the midst of the building of the temple that was rejected and that eventually became the capstone. So uh, the lore says that's where this saying, that's where this proverb came from. Uh, Peter, in one of his letters, actually makes this connection. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then Peter goes on to quote Psalm 118, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so what that means is Jesus is not just the, the, the uh, cornerstone in that he was rejected but later exalted, though that's true, but he's the cornerstone of God's new living temple. And what that means is if there is a new temple, that means the old temple has lost its purpose. The priests and the Sadducees and other religious leaders, what did they do? They oversaw the temple. That was their job. They held the religious life of Israel in their hands. But if there's a new temple in which God is at work and salvation is found in this new temple, 
What does that mean for them? The priests and the Sadducees have lost their position. They have no more clout, no more pool. Salvation is not found in the lamb slain at the altar. Salvation is found in the lamb slain on Calvary. For, as Peter says in verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And, of course, in the Old Testament, we're told that uh, God caused his name to dwell in the temple. Uh, You may remember that. You know, God talks about, the Old Testament talks at times about God himself dwelling in the temple. But when it gets specific, it says we know, God, that you can't dwell in the temple because you're God. You fill all things. But God caused his name to dwell there. And, um, but now God has caused his name to dwell in a person, in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Right? He is Lord. God dwells uniquely in him. This is a threat, right? It's a threat to the temple elite. It's a threat to their understanding of the way the world works. It's a threat to their status as those who run the show. No other name, right? That's a threat to really anyone who claims exclusive access to God. There's no other name except Jesus. And it's a threat to anyone who claims that, that, that no one has exclusive access to God, right? So on the one hand, it's a threat to the exclusivity of the Jewish temple, right? It overturns it. It's no longer the temple. It's, it's in the new temple, in Jesus, right, that we have access to our Father. And it's a threat to the, the pluralism or the relativism of our day, Right? Salvation is not found in the name of Buddha. Right? Muhammad did not die for you. Uh, Darwin did not defeat death on your behalf. Right? Whatever uh, religion or anti-religion you can come up with, salvation is found in no one else. Only Jesus died for our sins and was raised, defeating death on our behalf. The resurrection is a threat right, to the reigning orthodoxy. There is, there is more than this life, right? There, this life, uh, there is life after death. There is a resurrection to come. The resurrection is also a threat to their status as the keepers of Israel's religion. Christ alone is the true temple. Christ alone has access to the Father and grants it to those who trust in him. But third, the, the resurrection was a threat to their control. And uh, we'll talk more about this in a minute. But think about how the religious elite here try to maintain control. Right? They arrest they command. Verse 21, they threaten. Right? Why, why are their threats meaningless? Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus once said in, in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And Jesus' point there, uh, maybe contrary to what we often think, Jesus' point is, Don't fear man who can kill your body. Uh, But fear God who can destroy your enemy, body and soul, because you are of more value to God than many sparrows. The point is God's going to take care of you. God will care for you as his children. And, of course, in light of the resurrection, uh, we understand even better. Not only can God defeat our enemies, take care of us in whatever harmful situations we find ourselves, but even if our enemy does destroy our body... Like Jesus, God will raise us up from the dead on the last day. See, we may be put to death, but Jesus has defeated death. What this means is anyone who tries to control or manipulate us through intimidation or threats of personal harm, suddenly their threats don't carry the same weight they once did. Whatever you might lose in this life, God has promised a resurrection and a restoration and glory in the life to come. 
that's where our hope is, whatever we gain or lose in this life aside. Yes, you can kill me, but my God will raise me from the dead on the last day. And so Jesus' resurrection is, is a threat to the, the, the reigning religious orthodoxy of the day. Uh, it's a threat to the, their status, status of the religious leaders in that day. It's a threat to their control, the control of those in power. Now, already you might be thinking about yourself, right? Do I find myself in the position of the Sadducees here? Uh, do I deny that there's anything beyond this life? Uh, do I reject the notion of life after death? Or a final judgment. Uh, even if I don't deny those things, do I live as if they are not true, right? Do I live as if this life is all there is? Um, how does Jesus and his resurrection threaten my beliefs? Whether the beliefs that I confess or uh, the deep down beliefs that I live by. Even if I wouldn't say it's true, you know, what does my life show? Are there systems that keep me on top, like the Sadducees? Do I have some status in this life that keeps me up and others down? How does the Jesus' resurrection threaten that, that status, that position? How does the, the resurrection kingship of Jesus relativize my status in life? Because he has risen as king, as Lord. Are there ways that, that I uh, threaten or bully or manipulate the people around me? How does Jesus' resurrection show that my threats really, in the end, are empty threats? They carry no real weight. And I, I shouldn't want people to feel the weight of those threats because I want them to hope in the resurrection, in which case those threats are empty. For the Sadducees to acknowledge Jesus, to acknowledge his resurrection, it would mean they have to admit that they're wrong uh, about the resurrection at least. They have to give up their social standing. They have to lose control. They don't want to do that. What, what about you? What do you have to lose? How does the resurrection actually threaten your hold on life? And what would you do to maintain it? What, what would you do to hold on to the control that you have? Which really brings us to our next point in the Sadducees looking at them as they clamor for power here. You know, as we look at the religious leaders in this passage, they are clamoring for control, right? They, they see the threat and they're doing everything they can to fight back. Uh, first, they use their earthly power and arrest Peter and John. Uh, they, they hold them overnight. They interrogate them. But no matter what they do, uh, at every turn, they are shown to be powerless. Peter and John are uneducated, common men, according to verse 13. Here are the religious elite. This debate should be easy, right? They should be able to handle this, no problem. And yet Peter and John are bold, and the religious elite are scared, Notice verses 14 to 16 again. Seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. See, they don't know what to do. Uh, the work of Jesus is evident. It's undeniable. They have nothing to say. They, they can't admit the truth that the risen Jesus has healed this man, and so they ignore it. They, they ignore it. Uh, but you'll notice, verse 21, they keep pray, uh, the people, nevertheless, keep praising God for what has happened. The religious leaders ignore the truth. We're just going to not even acknowledge it. But that does nothing to shore up their orthodoxy, right? Ignoring the truth doesn't make your version of the truth more appealing to people. Uh, the people see what happened, and they praise God for it. So, so what do they do next, right? Uh, verse, uh, verses 17 to 18. In order that uh, 
that it may spread no further among the people. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Right? They, they, they will not acknowledge the truth, so they ignore it. They will not give up their social uh, status, uh, so they cling to it and attempt to capitalize on it. They leverage it, right? Uh, they're the religious leaders, after all. So they command Peter and John to stop teaching in Jesus' name, right? You need to listen to us. Stop this teaching in Jesus' name. Of course, it doesn't work. You know Peter and John's great response, verses 19 to 20. Uh, they say, well, um, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, uh, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And, and here's what's interesting, actually, about their response. Uh, they say, uh, whether it is right to speak, uh, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God. Um, here's what's interesting. Who commanded Peter and John to preach in Jesus' name? Jesus did, right? He said, you will be my witnesses. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, when Peter and John say they must listen to God rather than men, what they mean is they must listen to the risen Christ, they must listen to Jesus. Uh, that, that's where we hear the voice of God speaking in the person of Jesus, God incarnate, God in the flesh. Not through the, the religious establishment, but through the risen Christ, who, of course, today continues to speak uh, through the apostolic testimony in Scripture. We continue to hear uh, the voice of Jesus. The one you rejected, they're saying, God exalted. He is Lord and King. We must listen to Him. Whatever you may think, Peter and John are saying, right, your status is gone. It's at least relativized under the kingship of Jesus. We have to honor King Jesus. We have to listen to King Jesus. Whatever you might say, that's what we're going to do. And, and yet, the religious leaders, they persist, right? They won't give up. So verse 21, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened, right? They, they still try to control the situation. They try to manipulate. They threaten. Uh, now, we, we just talked about how the resurrection undercuts our threats. Jesus rose, and so our threats become ultimately meaningless. Um, but I want you to notice something else. Uh, why didn't they just do away with Peter and John right then and there? Why not just get rid of them, right? Or at the very least, give them a good beating, right, to ensure that they're going to listen to what you have to say. Uh, well, verse 21 says, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. See, all the power that they thought they had, they never really had in the first place. Worldly power is always dependent on the whim of those who are more powerful or greater in number than you. And so the Sadducees, the, 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 the uh, high priests, the priests, the elders, and so on, uh, they're afraid to act. Even though they're the ones in charge, they're afraid to act because of the whim of the people. Worldly power can always be overturned by worldly means. So that these religious elite in Israel, they have everything, right? Political, economic, religious power. They have thre they're threatened by the resurrection as well they should be uh, because the resurrection has upset their beliefs, their status, their control. And so they scramble, right? It was a power grab and they knew it, right? They arrested Peter and John. They ignored the obvious evidence. They issued impotent commands. They made powerless threats. And through it all, Peter and John act with boldness. They act with boldness because of the power of the name of Jesus. Ultimately, the power that the religious elite had was what? It was the power of death. 
Uh, they, they could threaten and they could kill and they will do that as the story goes on in the book of Acts. And this is always the, the power that the world falls back on. This is the power that we often fall back on, right? When we make threats, when we condemn people, when we belittle them, when we shame and guilt and mock and ostracize, when we abandon or we steal or we hurt or we harm, right? The, the world can indeed kill your body. It can take your possessions, right? It can bring harm. People can bring you physical and mental and emotional and uh, social and economic harm. But what of the power of the resurrected Jesus? The power of the resurrected Jesus is the power to give life. It's the exact opposite. The man lame from birth who's now walking and leaping and praising God, he bears witness to that fact. Jesus has the power to give life. And not just any life, right? A life that conquers death. He died and then rose. The life he gives overturns the power of death. This is why Jesus' kingdom is such a threat to every other kingdom, to every other king, right? Their ultimate weapon was defeated in the resurrection. Whatever the world may throw at you, however it may beat you down, right? Our response is Jesus rose. Life has conquered death. The religious elite had everything, but they were threatened by this power of the resurrection. So they scrambled to grab power, but Jesus rose conquering death. Conquering death. This brings us to our final point about our own struggles. Uh, and I want to mention briefly just three ways that we struggle with power. And there could be dozens more, right? But three ways that we struggle. Um, first is, is when we are threatened for our faith. Uh, this is the most obvious from the passage, right? Uh, like Peter and John, like Jesus, right? We, we will sometimes be threatened for our faith in Jesus, uh, this may be life-threatening, uh, as it is in some places and sometimes in different parts of the world. Uh, it, it may be the threat simply of losing your job or losing prestige or losing a friendship. Those in power, uh, to the degree that they understand the resurrection and what its implications are, will be threatened by it. It may begin uh, with simply being annoyed, as we're told about uh, the religious leaders in Jesus' day or in the Peter and John's day. It may begin with simply being annoyed. It may end with threats on your life. Uh, where you are in the world, where you are in history, uh, may determine the degree of the world's responses or response. Uh, but some of those in power will always be threatened. Their, and their response will be to use their power, uh, whether to shame or to kill, right, to put down that threat. The question is, how do we respond? Um, we can respond with boldness, right? like Peter and John. Because we know that the one, we know the one who has the power of life, the one who rose from the dead. We don't have to fear the world becoming annoyed. Uh, we don't have to fear the world putting us to death, right? As many Christians throughout the, the past 2,000 years have been for their faith. Our job is simply to faithfully represent Jesus in word and in deed, right? Entrusting our lives to him. So whether in this life we have much or have little, whether in this life we are put to death or live long lives into old age, right? either way we know that our true lives will come when he returns. That's our hope. Second, we often experience power struggles in relationships. You know, very often when we're threatened in our relationships, we respond like the Sadducees do. We uh, ignore the truth. We claim our status. We use force to try to control the people around us. We want to shore up our advantage and lose no ground. Um, we're living as if Jesus has not been raised. 
You know, whenever you feel threatened, really, that's, that's a good opportunity to look at your heart. What are you holding on to? What is so important? If it's not the gospel or your love for God and neighbor, the two great commandments, uh, then there is probably something in your heart that needs to be dealt with. The gospel enables us to be honest about our failings, to give up any claim to rights, any claim to status, and to let go the reins of life as if they were ever in our hands in the first place. Uh, We can be honest about our failings because we know forgiveness in the cross. We can give up our rights because we know that life is found in following our Savior, who did not claim his rights, but became a servant and headed to the cross. Not because he had done anything wrong, not because he deserved it, but out of love for us, the unlovely. And so we now take up our cross and follow him. We can let go the reins of life, knowing that God is in control, even when the hour looks darkest. When your cross weighs heavy upon you, when the nails pierce deep, when you feel like you have been laid in the tomb for dead, God is still in control. And with Jesus, whatever suffering you endure in this life, suffering comes before glory, the cross before the crown. We have hope in the resurrection. We have the hope of all things being made new. So we, we are forgiven. Uh, now we, we follow Christ into a life of sacrifice, into a life often of pain. But we do that with the hope of the resurrection firmly before our eyes, walking with our hope planted there. So we have these power struggles. When the world ridicules our faith, we can respond in hope. Uh, when, when relationships backfire, once again, we respond in honesty, in hope of things to come. Uh, the third power struggle is, is how we are called to manifest Jesus' power in the here and now. Um, you know, we're not Peter and John. We're not the apostles. We're not likely going to heal any lame men anytime soon, uh, though we can certainly pray, as James encourages us to do, pray for those who are sick. Um, but what can we do right, that would be undeniable evidence that Jesus is with us? That's what they have here, right? That the people can't say a word. Well, the problem is we often want to do sort of big, we want to have these big displays of greatness. Uh, we want to wow people. We want to impress the world with Jesus. We want big buildings or big budgets or big numbers. We want cool music or cool lingo or cool art or cool books or whatever it is. We want something that's going to be impressive, something that's going to cause people to take notice. We want to manifest the greatness of Jesus according to the world's rules. Of course, that's exactly what we cannot do. Uh, We manifest the power of Jesus by, by not living according to the world's Games by not living according to the world's power struggles. His power is not manifested in our worldly stature, but in our weakness. God's power in our weakness, of course, doesn't mean that we don't use our strengths. It means that we are honest about our weakness, about our failures, and we use our strengths in dependence upon God. Not for our own glory, but for the good of those around us, right? So it's when, we, it's when we love the unlovely, when we empower the powerless, when we care for those who, in a worldly sense, should be our enemies. It's when we don't claim our rights, but we give them up for the sake of others. That would be the kind of undeniable evidence that Jesus is in our midst. Those would be the kinds of things that would stop mouths. Here's the way Peter puts it in one of his letters, 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 11 and 12, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then, in order to explain the kind of conduct which will glorify God, Peter lists things like uh, being subject to those in authority, uh, being good servants, or we might say being good employees, being good wives and good husbands, striving for unity and love in the church, Uh, Not paying people back for wrongs done, but blessing your enemies and being zealous for what is good and being ready to speak about our hope in Jesus. You want to know what a a life would look like that would manifest the resurrection power of Jesus in our midst. Just read the book of 1 Peter. It's all about what it looks like to live a life of suffering in a way that honors God. And it's simply honoring God, right? Honoring God in the context in which you find yourself. It's not flashy, It's just faithful, faithful to our God. Now, I I don't know what you have to lose in this life. Uh, The resurrection of Jesus relativizes the importance of those things. Rather than clamoring for worldly power and prestige, we can rest in the resurrection power of Jesus. We can live for Jesus in the moment, and we can hope in the resurrection life to come. Let's pray. Our Father, we we do pray that you would set our hope on the resurrection, that you would lift our eyes off of this life. We are so often concerned for what we might lose in this life. And I pray, Father, that you would set our eyes on what we will gain at the resurrection, that we would radically live for that day, for that moment, when we will see our Savior face to face, Uh, when we will enter into perfect, unbroken fellowship with Him forever. Father, we pray that we would live now in light of things to come, in light of the work of Jesus, in light of His presence with us, and in light of His return on that last day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.